Welcome to Your Partner in Success Radio, a program that values the potential of knowledge, collaboration, and growth. The show is hosted by Denise Griffiths, who is known as an intensely curious nerd in stilettos. Each Wednesday, she is joined by co-host Ben Gay III, a renowned figure in the sales world. Ben is recognized for introducing The Closers, one of the most popular and powerful sales training materials ever produced. Having been mentored by Dr. Napoleon Hill himself, Ben has gained a wealth of knowledge on sales and life. Throughout the show, Denise and Ben delve into the world of sales, entrepreneurship, and success, exploring Ben's vast experience from guiding and mentoring countless professionals to achieve unparalleled success in their careers. Together, they offer unmatched guidance to listeners seeking success in their professional endeavors. Good morning. I'm your host, Denise Griffiths, and I welcome you to another exciting episode of the Closer's Inner Circle podcast, where my co-host, Ben Gay III, and I dive deep into the world of sales and we uncover the secrets to effective communication. And as Cool Hand Luke once said, what we have here, and I'm going to try to do this in a southern accent, what we have here is a failure to communicate. I don't even know if that's right or not, but it was fun to say. And boy, is that statement ever true. And by the way, I was just listening to our intro, and as mentioned, you know, Ben was mentored by the late, great Dr. Napoleon Hill, and I am being mentored by Ben Gay. It's the best of both the worlds. So today we are going to explore the importance of communication. We all know that sales are really all about connecting buyers and sellers. And that connection can only happen if we communicate effectively. So imagine this scenario. A customer takes one look at your price and says, your price is outrageous. Well, that right there is a classic example of a communication breakdown. So when a customer reacts negatively to a price, it's a sign that we have not effectively conveyed the value, important, listen to that value, and the benefits of our product or service. But don't worry about it. Ben is here to explain through the power of effective communication, you can turn things around. Ben, good morning. It's always great to chat with you. Thank you. How are you? And I'm glad to have you announce in advance that you're going to say something in a southern accent. Not that anyone would have, not that anyone would have caught that. No, I don't. And you know, I've always people say, "Oh, you have a southern accent." I do not. I have a drawl. That's different. It's completely different. <laughs> I mean, where I live, I'm in Southwest Louisiana. I am right smack dab in the middle of Cajun country, and to me, an accent is regional. And in Cajun country, you can hear 14 different Cajun accents at one table with people having coffee. I don't have an Absolutely. accent. Absolutely. That's, That's true. So, I can even go city by city or neighborhood by na- neighborhood. I can tell the, the most cultured southern accent that I generally hear is Richmond, Virginia. Virginia is good, but the Richmond, Virginia, I can tell that one. So it's uh, all, all a matter of taste. I, uh, I have, I think I may have told you this. Gigi doesn't allow me to talk to Southern sales ladies uh, until she decides if we're going to buy it or not. And the, her objection is that whatever a Southerner, a lady Southerner says to me, I'll pretty much do. I was raised that way. <laughs> You do, and then if I compliment the southern accent, you, you people, sneaky as you are, double it. You, you crank it up. The next sentence is a lot more southern than the one I complimented. So I'm admire an admirer of it. I just bought a uh, my yearly diary, and I got the new deluxe version because the lady I talked to was from Mississippi, and when I complimented her southern accent, she went full bore southern and upgraded me in about four sentences. Poor Gigi. She knows you. (laughs) I'm surprised she likes me, but we get along beautifully, so thank goodness for that. But I really don't don't have an accent, and I apparently was born with it. Even though I was not born and raised in the South, I've been here almost all of my life. I was born and raised in Northern California, as you know, and my mother would often say, you were just born in the wrong century and in the wrong state. I know. 
I mean, I got out of high school and I took the first bus out. I was gone. <laughs> so it just, I wasn't supposed to be there. But I, apparently I've already had this weird kind of draw and it's just, I have no explanation for it. Well, I was born in Springfield, Massachusetts. So I was born a Yankee. Uh, lived briefly in California when my dad opened up a real estate operation here <clears throat> and then moved to Atlanta by the time I was about six. So I say I was born a Yankee but raised a Southerner by the grace of God. And my uh, aunts and uncles used to make fun of me because when I left New England, I had a whatever accent you have if you're five, you know, four, five, six years old. But what I had was New England. And then after I was gone a year or two and they talked to me on the phone, all of a sudden they were talking to a little Southern boy. So, <laughs> so <laughs> the Southern has gotten me early <laughs> and turned me around. Well, it's, it's such an easy way to speak. I mean, when we're tired, I catch myself doing this. We slur our consonants. And it means we're typically speaking a little bit slower than other people. And I will often tell somebody, listen, you're going to have to slow down. I have seven years. I didn't hear but every fourth word. (laughs) (laughs) My sister talks rapidly, but with a heavy Southern accent. And it takes me, oh, two or three minutes to, if we're on the phone, getting in the rhythm of what she's saying. Because you have the Southern accent, which is lovely, but sometimes a little difficult uh, to decipher given at New York speed. (laughs) It's a a true dichotomy. Yeah, we see that around New Orleans every once in a while. Well, let's talk now. We've been talking about communication, which is important. it, It is how you speak. It's what you're saying. It's how you're observing. But to me, it's more what you're sharing with whoever it is that you're trying to sell something to. You know, whether you're selling them a service, whether you're just selling them on anything. You know, it's like, hey, I've got this old beat-up mower. I would really like for you to have it for free, whatever it's going to be. But we have to have some skills. And I think a lot of people don't understand that sales, no matter what it is you're, you're selling or trying to sell or even trying to convince somebody else, you need some skills. So let's talk about those because – Listen, listen actively, empathy, all of those things. These are so important. So I am going to mute myself and let you run with it. Because, like I said, you're my mentor, and you can't mentor me if I'm yakking. <laughs> you touched on an important part of listening. Is an, when you think about selling, you think about what you're going to say. And, uh, you know, say this, and if they say this, you say this, and so on. Listening is far more important than speaking. It was said of Nelson Mandela that although he was a great speaker and a courageous guy and so on, his greatest skill was he was a dynamic listener. And uh, almost all of the great people I've read about or worked with were to a person dynamic listeners. Wouldn't break eye contact with you focused in they made you feel and you'll find this in almost any book you read about a great person somewhere in there there'll be a sentence that is like this when I was with him or her I felt as if I were the only person in the world or the most important person in the world or whatever that connection was made and a big part of that was by being a good listener and although I hadn't planned on talking about this, you you frequently trigger my thought process. I started a program at San Quentin years ago called People Builders, moved it to Lompoc uh, Federal Penitentiary years later, and have have taught it in prisons and churches and so on. What we do, and and let me give you the benefits, when I got to San Quentin, the recidivism rate was 67%. That meant 67% of the people in prison who got out were back in prison within two years. That's the recidivism rate. The graduates of the People Builders Program, once we had two years to look at it, and I taught it there every week for five years, once we had those figures to study, 
uh, our recidivism rate was less than 5%. You know, what's the difference? What was the magic thing you did? Well, I didn't tell them at the time and frequently don't talk about it. It just comes naturally to me. People Builders was a public speaking course in disguise. People had no intent. They they wouldn't have been in the room if they thought they were going to be taught public speaking because public speaking is, most psychologists will agree, the number one fear ahead of death by fire. So to get people to uh, drop what they're doing and come from their homes or whatever, or San Quentin from their cells uh, to come learn how to be public speakers uh, instead of having 200 people anxiously awaiting me every night when I went in on Friday nights, um, I would have probably had 10, if that, because of the fear of it. So we disguised people builders as a how to get out of prison, stay out of prison course, uh, how to get a job effectively outside. And, and I worked with a, a, a program that uh, did just that. If you behaved in prison, did a good job, improved yourself and so on, we could almost guarantee you an income, uh, a job outside. And many of them, uh, many of the companies would take anyone we recommended. We had an active program with Levi Strauss. If we recommended them, they were hired, whether they were looking for anybody at that moment or not. But all of that was made possible because I lured people to the front of the room and had them talk and then somebody else get up and talk. And after a while, they were getting better and a little more expansive and they were learning how to be good communicators, public speakers, but good communicators. And that was the secret to a five less than 5% recidivism rate versus 67%. Being able to effectively communicate gives you, among other things, confidence. With confidence uh, comes all sorts of other benefits. And people who had never really achieved much in their life for various reasons, huge percentage of the people in prison are uh, can't read or write effectively or anywhere near their grade level or their age level. Many, many of them have dyslexia. And so they're thrown out in the world. They can't read, they can't write, they can't add, they can't subtract. And most of them have, uh, many of them have dyslexia on top of that. And then we wonder why when they get hungry, they turn to crime. Uh, they need to eat. <laughs> They need to provide, if maybe for their families, if they have one, that's another problem. But they need to uh, provide at least for themselves. And rather quickly, you're sticking up a grocery store instead of going to work in a normal way. So there's a, there's a reason for all that, but I don't want to get off on the social thing. It, it wasn't my fault. I didn't set up the system. That's just what is. And so we tried to help them. Uh, overcome that by becoming effective communicators, Latin for public speakers. And, right. uh, and uh, so, so many people took off as a direct result of that. I have a... a well, well Ben, you your son, you didn't your adopted son come from People Builders? He did. And his at, story at, is at incredible. Let's talk about that because it's such an important story. Well, he... Lamont Bowen is his name, and I think you you said you ordered his book, so if you don't have it yet, you soon will, and, and uh, you'll read about him. But the name of his book is Don't Let Your Past Hold You Back, The Redemption of a Gangster. <laughs> yeah, spelled gangster. He still has a little bit in him, I guess. He came up to me. I'll tell you the Lamont story. He came up to me one night standing outside the dining hall at Lompoc Federal uh, penitentiary complex. They have a maximum security, a medium security, and a camp. This meeting was at the camp, uh, minimum security, outside the dining hall, and he came up and sort of whispered to me from behind. I didn't see him coming. Well, Lamont and I are several shades apart. In, uh, I'm a pasty white uh, Irishman, uh, Irish-American, and Lamont is quite dark and handsome African-American. So he comes up behind me and almost whispered, 
uh, something to the effect of, Mr. Gay, can I come to the public speaking class? And without even turning around, I said, you're Lamont Bowen. He said, how'd you know that? I said, because a friend of yours told me weeks ago you were going to come to the class as soon as you got your nerve up. And he said, yeah, I'm scared. And uh, he said, you won't, you won't make me speak, will you? And, and I said, no, just come in, relax. So we went in the side door into the dining hall at Lompoc. The side door, the way the room was set up, put you at the front of a couple of hundred uh, inmates. Some prefer to be called convicts, <laughs> but inmates. So we walk in, we're at the front of the room with all of them faces. I've got my hand on the back of his neck, you know, guiding him in. And I said, uh, out of habit, and there was a lady in the room, one correctional officer. I said, ladies and gentlemen, we have a special guest tonight. You all know him uh, around the yard. His name is Lamont Bowens, and uh, he'll be our first speaker tonight. Lamont? <laughs> I thought he was going to pass out. Yeah, his, uh, every muscle in his body had tensed to the maximum. It felt like a steel coil. And uh, But he started talking. Well, he didn't have much inventory, meaning he didn't have much to talk about in front of a, an audience he hadn't expected to talk to. But what little he said, five minutes or less, was as good word for word as Martin Luther King Jr. was as a speaker. He had a deep voice, and he projected. He didn't have much to project, but what, what he had, he projected and when he finished, I remember, I forget what the buildup was. I think it was becoming a better person, getting out of this hellhole and getting a good job. His last words were, so, so let's get busy. And he dramatically walked off. And he got a stand, a spontaneous, not encouraged, spontaneous standing ovation. And I thought to myself, he's hooked. I got him. Because very few of us can withstand a standing ovation uh, properly given and sincerely given without being a little hooked into the business itself of communicating. You want to feel that again. Well, Lamont was 19 years old. He uh, uh, did not have a high school uh, diploma. He, he said he dropped out in the ninth grade. Well, in talking to him, I wasn't sure he ever dropped in, but whatever, he didn't graduate from high school. So I had some people I helped. I had some people in the class assigned to him to help him get his GED, which he did before he left. He was 19 years old, serving a five-year sentence for uh, drug dealing, drugs and all the problems that go with that. And uh, But he got his GED. And then when he got out, uh, he called me and, uh, you know, can you continue to help me? Of course. And after a few phone calls, and, Gigi, and then he came up and Gigi met him, he, uh, uh, we uh, agreed to, uh, I forget whether he asked or we insisted, but we adopted him. And so Lamont is uh, our son. I just had a lovely text, email, and conversation with him because of Father's Day. I just loved to hear his accent and have him say, Dad? <laughs> is, is mom there? You know, and uh, oh. well, it's not well. Not too long after that, after he got out, uh, I'm making up numbers, but probably two or three years later, he called and he says, "I got a favor to ask." I said, "Sure, what is it?" And he said, "I want to go to college." And my mind is whirring, thinking, "How much does that cost?" Because I hadn't put it been a while since I put a kid through college, and. Uh, he said, this won't cost you a penny. All I want you to do is co-sign on my student loan. I immediately agreed, and we've never had to pay a penny. I assume it's paid off by now, but uh, it, it was never subject to conversation. Again, no contact from the lender, nothing. And he graduated from college. And then fast forward two, three years, whatever, phone rings again. Uh, he want, he says, Dad, I got another favor. I said, how much is this one going to cost me? Kidding, because the first one didn't cost me anything. Uh, and he said, well, I want to go to law school. R reminder, 19 years old, no GED, no high school diploma. Now he wants to go to law school. 
And I said, well, what do you need another guarantee? And he said, yep. I said, you got it. Fast forward a few years, he's out, uh, graduates, uh, becomes a member of the bar in a couple of states. I think Texas might have been the first, and then Delaware. And just recently, it wasn't that uh, he couldn't get it. He just didn't need it. Just recently, he was uh, inducted in the California State Bar. And uh, and he sent us a picture of him on a camel in Dubai or someplace where they have camels. He's traveling all over the world doing business. He wished me Father's Day from Montreal, Canada. He was doing something up there. And his entire life has turned around. And this is a kid who at one time was in a gun battle. A gun battle might be an exaggeration. They shot at each other several times with his stepfather. And so he didn't exactly have the background that I'd had or that I was used to dealing with. But he pulled himself out of that and uh, set himself on the right track and has just done a wonderful job. Oh, a cute thing. He sent me pictures of his swearing in in the California bar. And the guy swearing him in was the guy who prosecuted him 20 years ago. Oh, my. Swore him him in as a lawyer but had arrested or I don't think he arrested him, but he had prosecuted him. Uh, as a criminal 20 years before. So oh, that man had to have been of, so proud. Both of them had to have been so yeah. proud. Yeah. There's an example of turning your life around, and the difference was he became an effective communicator. Uh, and therefore comes with that respect and open doors and all sorts of things that don't exist if you can't. So he came to People Builders thinking he was going to find an easy way out of prison, get in with a cool crowd that would get him out of prison. Instead, we taught him how to effectively communicate, how to be a public speaker. He's now a successful attorney traveling all over the world. I couldn't be prouder of him. He's a wonderful, wonderful guy. But communication, again, was the key, and that's one of the major keys in selling, including when they tell you your price is too high. You want to touch on that? I definitely do, and I do that. Well, as soon as his book gets here, I'll take a picture and show it to you. I can't wait to read it because I've heard about Lamont for years now, and you know, I just find that yeah, entire yeah. story lovely, fascinating, and lovely. But what you said about paper people builders, Ben, is so important because that's exactly what you were doing and what you're doing now, helping sales professionals say, hmm, okay, what I'm doing is maybe not working. I should maybe listen to Ben, and I should open up the closers. <laughs> and right now I'm on page 181 where it says, you know, Cool Hand Luke, which I thought was hysterical. But, yes, let's de- definitely talk about that because there are a lot of people who don't understand that they're selling effectively. I was one of those people. I had no idea. In fact, I was insulted when somebody said that I was a natural salesperson. I've told that story before. But, and there are other people who are trying so darn hard that they're actually repelling the people around them. It's just not working. There has to be a medium, a medium there where you can just go, okay, I'm not going to do this anymore. I'm going to do that and I'm going to build up my skills. So I'm going to mute and you let her rip. Well, no need to mute. Jump in and out whenever you wish. The uh, premise, and it was because of the title of the uh, uh, chapter we're teaching from today, if you follow along in your books, uh, we're on page 181. Your price is outrageous in the closers part two. And, uh, They probably won't use the word outrageous, but your price is too high, et cetera. And whether they say it or not, you must understand they're probably thinking it. So let's sort of break that down. Your your price is too high. One, you, it's entirely possible that's true. Uh, And if your price is too high, competition will knock you into line, whether you like it or not, or knock you out of business or knock you out of the sales business, even if your company, the company, survives your departure. But uh, so if it is outrageous, for real, 
then you got to figure out a way to fix that uh, or go sell something that's not that way. I wouldn't waste five minutes of my time trying to sell something that was legitimately overpriced. In fact, I don't even take them on as clients to start with. I've had enough business experience to sort of know what things cost and what they ought to uh, sell for. Or what they Sometimes it's what they must sell for, but then there's a little slack where you can go above that as long as competition doesn't get to you. But if it truly is net, 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 outrageously overpriced or even noticeably overpriced, drop it and go find something uh, that isn't that you can be excited about. Uh, and understand the way I come at things, although companies pay me, individual salespeople pay me to be their mentor. I have, at any given time, 30, 35 clients that fall into that category. Uh, but generally, the bigger money comes from companies paying me. And they quickly, if I don't mention it up front, they quickly will say things like, you seem to be on the salesperson's side. And I said, well, I am. That's the reason I'm one of the top salesmen in the world and a great sales trainer, et cetera, is because I am on the salesperson side. The company that employs them is necessary or else they wouldn't have anything to sell. But nothing happens till somebody sells something, as Elmer Wheeler famously said. He's the guy who said, find a need and fill it. So, uh, I'm, I am on the salesperson's side always. Uh, the famous story where I told a, a group of people selling Yugos to when the seminar was over, it wasn't just Yugos. It was a mixed bag of, you know, Lincoln and Cadillac and Lexus and everybody, salespeople. But there was a group there uh, from uh, Yugo, the old Yugo. I'm told they're back and a little better than they used to be. I really don't know. But it used to be a joke, and I, I would tell them and did to this entire dealership, Salesforce, one day, when the seminar's over, here's my recommendation. Go back to the dealership, clean out your desk, and go get a job uh, at a dealership that's selling a quality product that's competitively priced, and then spend your time talking to people who are qualified to buy it. And I'm told, uh, they, they weren't an individual client of mine, but I'm told that that's what they did. The entire sales force went back to the dealership, cleaned out their desk, and uh, went off to sell various other products and services. So, and, and part of that is effective communications where you find out what the real problem is. But understand with the price, let's assume now for a moment that the price really isn't outrageous. Here's what I've discovered in training people. Uh, let's say there's 20 salespeople in a room. One of them or two at the most have a constant price problem. Everybody says to them, the price is too high. Doesn't come up with anybody else apparently, but they, and what I've decided to call them over the years is they are carriers. Uh, they, they may or may not have the disease personally, but they're carriers. They either believe the product is overpriced or they're easily susceptible. And once they hear it a few times, that becomes the fact, uh, a fact of life. So they go into a sales situation believing the product is overpriced. Uh, and uh, as a result, they have dismal results. And they don't understand that they're the carrier, that they're the problem. Uh, so it doesn't get fixed. They just whine and moan until they go to sell something else. And then probably if they're that type of person, they take the, that problem to the new place also. So check yourself. One, is it true uh, for real, not because you're weak? Is it true that it's overpriced? If so, change some things like where you work and what you sell. Are you a carrier? Are you carrying that objection into meetings with you? You encounter the salesperson, the, uh, the buyer uh, prospect, and you're five minutes in, all of a sudden they have a price objection. It's you. Now let's go to another little step. Once you've understood that, let's assume that the price is a little higher uh, than others, but there's a reason for it. One of my reasons when if I'm selling anything, it's a little bit more expensive than somebody else. If 
perhaps my mentoring program is versus somebody else. My answer to that is, they said, well, what's the difference between this and this? I said, with this, you get me. You get Ben Gay. And that alone is worth the price that we're asking. If I was selling cars, I'd say, that's a great question. Let me give you my business card. I'd flip it over and write my personal, private cell phone number on the back. With this car, you get me. You get Ben Gay. And when you, uh, uh, if it, God forbid, breaks down somewhere, calling AAA or whatever is wonderful. But first, call me. I'll call AAA or we'll send a, a, a dealership truck to wherever you are. But you call me and it'll get fixed. I'm your warranty. I'm your guarantee that everything's going to be all right. So that knocks down a whole lot of price objections because nobody else can say they got Ben Gay in their glove compartment, so to speak. And no one can say that they have you in their glove compartment, so to speak. Uh, That's unique. So first, you sell yourself. And if you sell yourself, I've never had anybody say, pay you that much personally? No, that's outrageous. Well, it's not because I've worked hard to build a reputation where it's not outrageous. And then let's assume that there is a price uh, component. It's not outrageous looking at whatever you're buying or looking at, but it's a factor. In the example I frequently give when I worked with British Motors in San Francisco, they sold, among other things, Rolls Royces. And, uh, They'd say, you know, you don't understand when you have to break the news to somebody that the starter kit is $350,000 and goes up from there rapidly for the one they really want. And uh, I said, sure, I do. Here's how you do it. Go over, hand them your card, say, hi, I'm Ben Gay. It's my pleasure to welcome you to British Motors today. And uh, uh, let me tell you, before we get started and I start showing you around, let me tell you one of the things I just love about this job. I get to meet and work with people like you who are successful enough in their life that they can even consider investing, notice I didn't say paying, investing $350,000 in a car like this. These uh, Rolls Royces are for very, very special people. And while I'm talking, I'm studying them carefully. If they vomit a little bit in the back of their throat or their eyes dilate, probably they don't have $350,000 to invest in Rolls Royce. Maybe maybe they'd heard they were uh, more expensive, but they didn't know how much more expensive. So rather than sitting there waiting for the other shoe to drop, let's get the price out and in a positive manner. J. Douglas Edwards, my old friend and mentor, I wrote a book for him after he died called Sales Closing Power, which is available in the Closer series. Um, He says, if you have a built-in objection, bring it up first and brag about it. I saw one just this morning. Uh, Some of you may have already seen it too. Uh, AARP, American Association of Retired People, I think that's what it stands for, but it's for us old folks. AARP has a new commercial out. And keep in mind that for whatever reason, most of their members lean right as we get older and have things to conserve. <laughs> we tend to get a little more conservative than we were in our youth uh, when perhaps we didn't have so much and we were hoping somebody would give us some. Uh, AARP, therefore, membership leans right, but their management, I don't know how it happened, leans left and they contribute some of the money they take in to causes that perhaps individually many of their members wouldn't support. So the new line, I'm paraphrasing because it's somewhat different in each commercial, whether it's the man or the woman or whomever talking, but up front in every one of those commercials is, you may not agree with everything AARP does, but I'll tell you on Social uh, Security and Medicare, no one knows it better and looks out for you more and so on and so so I'm about to sell you on buy, joining AARP or buying an AARP service, but you may be sitting there thinking, why would I join that left-wing organization? 
And they say, you may not like everything they do. Let's get back to what we're talking about, Social Security and Medicare and maximizing your benefits. The first time I heard it, it slid right past me. Uh, I was into Social Security and Medicare listening to what they could do, different than what I was already doing because I'm on both. Um, and And I didn't notice that they took that whole objection of we disagree on many things politically and just pushed it to the side. Same thing with the Rolls-Royce price at British Motors. Uh, rather than wait for you to panic when you hear $350,000, just go move that to the side. It's great that you can afford it. I assume if you can't, in other words, at some point you're going to leap up and down and scream. The uh, price objection can be true, therefore. Uh, it can be unique to you, it can be in you, the buyer, and it can be temporary. I've, I've spent $1,842 on my first new car, a 1962 Volkswagen. I still remember it because my hand was shaking as I wrote the check or signed the contract or whatever. I had to finance it. Um, and it so it, it was a concern to me. And the salesperson probably thought that would be the last he'd ever see of me because I traded in a Mercury on it that I paid $150 for a few years before. I'm sure when I drove off, it was taken to the junkyard. Uh, I didn't look like the great uh, car buyer they hoped for. However, in the next, starting about a year later when I bought my first new Cadillac, and proceeding on over the next three or four years and up until very recently, I don't have any reason to be doing it anymore, uh, that $1,842 Volkswagen turned into over 600 luxury cars that I bought and or leased, some for me and my wife, but mainly to give away as contest prizes, including two Rolls Royces, a Stutz Bearcat, and three or 400 Lincolns and three or 400 Cadillacs. So working your way through the price objection is really important and crucial because in selling, it's not just today. It's not the sale in front of you. It's building the relationship. People buy from people. This is a coin I termed, uh, coined years ago. People buy from people they know like, trust, and with whom they feel safe. And they'll pay pay to have the honor of working with you if they know they can feel safe. I'm in good hands. Uh, One of the insurance companies, State Farm, somebody says, you're in good hands with so-and-so. It's a brilliant line because that's what I want when I buy insurance or automobiles or anything of any significance. I want it to work and or the company stand behind it, and or the salesperson be there with me. So we reduce price uh, to a far less significant uh, thing. And, uh, and we learn how through listening to discover, is the price too high or is it their current condition? Here's one. A few years ago, uh, they announced the program at NASA, and I had done some work. I was attitude coach for the astronauts, Apollo 15, 16, 17. So I was reasonably well-connected. They announced the program where they were going to send up uh, a, uh, a private citizen, out of, and they did. Kristen McCullough, unfortunately, was killed in, when the shuttle blew up, the Challenger. <clears throat> but they announced basically that program. And I thought to myself, along with a couple of my friends, hey, we're, uh, we're public speakers. Uh, we can go out, and it's a program I set up with NASA years ago, take the astronauts that are not about to go fly. They're not on flight status right now, and some, send them out to schools and service clubs and so on. They were all neat, clean, articulate-looking people. Uh, send them out to service clubs and sell the, the citizens on why NASA is a good investment. It's never gotten even 1% of the federal budget, and yet it's done things that affect all of our lives. I'm sitting here looking at a computer screen right now. You can thank NASA for having this little bitty computer on my desk 
which has more computing power in it than the Apollo program had when they started shooting rockets to the moon and you were looking at the control room. Your cell phone has more computing power than many of those people you've watched in the control room at NASA. Send them out and and tell them. If you have a heart attack today, on the way to the hospital, they're going to start treating you right now and communicating with the hospital. How was that? NASA. NASA developed that technology so they could send people up in space and not just abandon them. So I decided it probably might be a good idea to be one of those people, one of the civilian astronauts. And there was a price involved plus time out of the business and, and so on. And I could afford it as best I recall. I know what the price was now. Uh, they're currently selling SpaceX shots at a million dollars a seat or something. I could afford it. But Gigi explained to me that we had an individual condition. It wasn't a price objection whether it was worth it or not. It was that my 50% partner in the love of my life was not willing to invest that amount of money in me becoming an astronaut at, which is what they call them at NASA, the passengers, astronaut ets. You're, you're along for the roller coaster ride. You're not really an astronaut. And uh, so there's one where I could afford it. Uh, I thought it was a little stiff, but when I thought of all the stuff that went into putting that thing together and putting you on the flight and giving you enough training so you didn't kill yourself or the others, um, uh, it, it was reasonable, high but reasonable. But there was a condition. The condition was GG, not a remote chance. I can hear her saying it now. Yeah, yeah, she said in so many words. (laughs) It may have just been no. I forget because she's learned that no is a complete sentence. Oh, it is. And with me, I'll say no and then I'll raise one eyebrow. People leave. They get out of my way. They know better. Yeah, I raised my left eyebrow. I raised three boys. Lamont was raised before we got our hands on him. I raised the three previous ones by just listening to their story and raising my left eyebrow. <laughs> it's scary. Go, okay. I've had people say, how can you do that? And they'll get, they'll stand in front of me and try. they'll contort their faces. It's so funny. It's like, I can do that. No, you can't. You either can or you can't. <laughs> well, it's and practice. It, it didn't come to me automatically. I took, took a little <laughs> practice. And I still can't really raise my right eyebrow. My left one goes up in an arch and will stay there. And my the eye beneath it goes dead like a shark eye. <laughs> this is why we get along so well. With me, it's my right brow, though. But oh, I understand why, yeah, I understand why Gigi would say no. I mean, that's and, – and given what's going on right now with the submersibles yeah. and Titanic and all of that, I can understand her angst. I really can. Well, I, I was younger and more full of myself. Today, I wouldn't take a free ride. And a good part of it is because of what's going on with the Titanic right now. Same thing, getting out on the raggedy edge, doing something you really don't have a whole lot of business doing. But uh, we ran an airport, a Marin County, California airport, and a fixed base operation area of the Cessna dealership, and we had... 40 some odd airplanes, uh, including the only flying B 29 in the world at the time, and a P 51 Mustang, and a B 24, and a B 17, and all that, and a Learjet, and all the stuff that goes with that. And the one thing I really took away from that experience it was called Spectrum Air. And because it was a money loser, we had to make more money in the other companies to support it. It was a hobby of Bill Patrick. I used to call it Rectum Air instead of spectrum air. But the thing that I learned there was if you have a whole lot of money quickly and you're young and sort of foolish, you do things you shouldn't be doing. Uh, We unfortunately owned the F-86 that went into Farrell's ice cream parlor and killed 22 people or so. Uh, We we had no business with an F-86. And the guy flying it, was he was qualified technically but he shouldn't have been flying an F-86. It was of the four errors, three of them were pilot error. Uh, so you get too much money. Or I, John Denver was killed flying one of our planes. Uh, well, I didn't uh, know that. No, no, no. 
no business lying there. And, and, and hadn't been trained. He was fiddling with the fuel thing behind his seat because nobody had told him not to do it that way and uh, was not able to pull out of the problem. Uh, short not doing that, he could have done a belly flop and he might have torn the plane up, but he probably would have survived it. But he wasn't facing out where you can do a belly flop. Too much money, too soon too many dangerous things to get involved in. And that may be part of the Titanic problem. Uh, It was certainly about to be one of my problems. We flew under, I'm fond of saying I've driven over the Golden Gate Bridge thousands of times between private yachts and being in the Coast Guard right under the Golden Gate Bridge for a period of time. I've sailed under the Golden Gate Bridge uh, hundreds of times in and out. And we flew under it once. We took our steerman, and uh, I signaled down to the gentleman who was sitting in the back seat, the official pilot on that flight, signaled down and made the uh, the gesture, we're playing, let's go under the bridge, and he nodded, and we went under it. That's against all sorts of federal laws and regulations and probably state. We took the plane back and hid it in the hangar and covered it with canvas, hoping no one had gotten the tail number when we did it. But there's an example of too much money too soon. I've been around money. Around is there ever going now. to be a movie made about you and all of your exploits? I mean, I'm already, I think I'm, I'm hearing the, the music in my head already. I think yeah. somebody's only, creating oh, about, a, about a minute to fly under the bridge, so I'm not sure I'll uh, stretch that into a movie. <laughs> but, uh, well, you've done a lot of stuff, though. So anyway, back just touching again on our subject matter, which is your price is outrageous. It may be. If it is, fix it. If it's not, it's probably you. You're a carrier. Solve that problem. And the other thing uh, is to be prepared to solve the problem uh, because if you've been in selling over 30 days, you've already heard every objection there is, that you'll ever hear regarding that product and that service. Really doesn't take 30 days to make enough calls. You'll know within a week. Since you know all of the objections and conditions and so on, they're going to be thrown at you after a week to 30 days. You know them. It would only make sense to have scripts. Script, I call them script nuggets, little choppy things that answer that. And by that I mean you don't have to go. Good evening, ladies and gentlemen. My name is Ben Gay, and talk for 47 minutes non-stop, and I used to do that with opportunity meetings. I'm saying that within that 47 minutes, there's a sentence or two that will handle just about any problem you're going to run into out in the field. Since you know what those questions are going to be, you don't take a deep breath or recoil and go, oh, my God, no one's ever said to me that $350,000 is a lot for a car. You prepare for that in advance. You know it's coming, if not on this sales call, on the next one, if not this prospect, on the next one. So you're ready for it. And it's just conversational with what you come back with. The uh, uh, years ago, in fact, I saw we touched on it in this chapter we're working with today. Uh, uh, Your your price is outrageous. Uh, The I, uh, hang on one second. I, I lost the page I was looking at, and, and it broke my train of thought. Since you know that's what's coming, you should be prepared in conversational tone to handle anything and have stories built up. People love stories. I'm known as a pretty good storyteller. I talk in word pictures. They say a picture's worth a thousand words. Well, a good story properly told that creates word pictures is therefore worth not a thousand words, but 10,000 words or more. A story, and it's in that chapter, uh, a story that uh, draws people in. Fred Herman was a great sales trainer. He's the one that made the recording, keep it simple salesman. Today you would say salesperson, but it was keep it simple salesman. He made a recording of it and uh, so on. Great guy from Cedartown, Georgia. 
old friend of mine and uh, and one of my early mentors. Uh, he was talking about things being overpriced or uh, being screwed over or what have you. And he was talking about this mutual fund salesperson that if he could find him today, this is years ago when he was telling me the story, but if he could find him today and he had a baseball bat handy, he beat him to death. And I said, my God, what happened? He said, he cost me, I think he said millions of dollars, which was interesting because I didn't think Fred Herman back in those days had millions of dollars. I said, my God, did he oversell you or what? And he said, no, he wasn't good enough to sell me on investing through dollar cost averaging in mutual funds. And this is in the 50s. So he said, so he let me get away. And I got away. And I'm millions of dollars lighter today as a result of him not being an effective salesperson. So he, he was literally, I mean, red in the face while telling me the story years later. He was still bitter. So if you're selling a quality product that's competitively priced and you're talking to qualified people, you have a duty to sell them. They're fighting that thing of I've got, let's pick a number, I got $200 in my pocket and he's offering me this item. Do I want the $200 or the item? Your job is to build the value to the point that they'd rather have the money, excuse me, rather have the product or service than the $200. And then you have those stories. There's one in that chapter. I haven't read it in quite some time, but I noticed uh, I, I talked about a product that I sell, a service, and it said it was $150. I don't have any $150 services today, but back when I wrote the book, apparently I did a $150 thing. And it because it was a service, it's air, talking, writing, giving them something that I've already written. And... Uh, uh, people say, well, that's outrageous. Well, not really. I'm selling you information. If I had the secret of life, literally, written on the side of a brown paper bag in crayon, and I had the only copy, how much would you pay? If you were dying of cancer, and I had the pill that would cure you, how much would you pay? In both of those cases, we built the value up where the price is almost insignificant. So your job is to do that with your product or service and do it through stories. The Fred Herman story I just told you, I hope you locked that into your head because if you did, that'll save you, save numerous sales and make you a lot of money over the years. You know, when somebody says, well, I don't know. You know, sir, you remind me so much of a story Ben Gay told me. Fred Herman, one of the great old sales trainers, and blah, 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 blah. And the salesman let him get away, and he went to his grave furious that the salesman didn't persist. So I'm not going to let you go today without being convinced that you know what I'm offering you. And then start asking and listening. All right, all right. And I was writing down some notes while you were talking so many people, so many salespeople make the mistake of, and, and this is earlier on in the conversation, so I'm, I'm tacking back up a bit there, but so many people make the mistake of thinking, well, the check cleared, I'm done. No, you're not. You know, the part <laughs> where you say, you know, here's, here's my business card. You can call me. You know, just as a, for instance, I'm a web developer by trade. I have built hundreds of websites and most of them some are you know now no longer in business one or two are have died one guy moved to uh, he shut his business down and went to Germany but I'm in touch with them all the time whether I'm still working with them or not still working with them it is not unusual Ben for somebody that I haven't touched their website in seven or eight years to call me or you know send me a frantic email and say, Denise, I think I broke my website. Can you help me? And I'll say, yeah, unless you've changed the passwords, I'll log in and see what it's all about. If it's, you know, it just takes me a few minutes, I fix it. There is no bill coming your way. But if it's going to take me more than an hour, yeah, it's going to cost you a hundred bucks an hour. And if you really mess with it, there's going to be a pain in the ass tax and that'll cost you a hundred bucks. 
because I told you not to do that. And, but it's not at all unusual for people after many years saying, oh, my God, Denise, and I'm always the person they go to. Whether they've had somebody else on that website or whether they've done it themselves, doesn't matter. I built it. I must be the magician. And they know how to reach me because I told them from the very beginning, do you need help? You let me know. And I meant it. And, and through drip marketing, you can do that with everybody. And drip marketing to me, I hope it doesn't mean something to other people, but to me, it's just staying in touch. Um, exactly. Yeah, I, I put out something on Facebook most days, occasionally two or three things. I try not to be annoying, but I, if you bought from me 60 years ago before the Internet and before Facebook and LinkedIn, and et cetera, et cetera, now you're – you're in the loop with me, however, accidentally, some of the people I lost touch with because it didn't used to be so easy. You know, you, you didn't know that they'd moved to England or uh, their situation had drastically changed. But that's not true now. You don't have any excuse for that. If you sell somebody today, depending on your age, let's say you're in your 20s, you should have a plan for doing business with them 50 years from now. I had, uh, may have told you this. I tell the story frequently. I had, did a meeting. It was supposed to be for 500 people. One showed up, and then his buddy joined him later. A total of two showed up. That was in 1965, which makes you, what, 35, 45, 50, got 58 years ago. I got up. I did the meeting. It was a favor to a friend. I had no money invested or, or potential profit. I got up and did the meeting, signed them up. Uh, turn them over to the person who sent them there, et cetera. And we're doing business 58 years later uh, in entirely different things where I am getting the money uh, because I treated them fairly, squarely, decently. Uh, I was straight with them, straight, straight, I call it. You be straight with me, I'll be straight with you. I treated them that way uh, all those years ago, and they still talk about that night like it happened yesterday. They were so impressed with it. So start building your legacy. You have people say to me, well, you've been in the business so long, that's easy. No, it wasn't. I started with one person. And now there may be directly and indirectly thousands of people, but I started with one. You start treating one properly now. By the clock on my desk, we're about out of time. Yeah, we are. And, you know, I've got so much more to talk about in this particular topic. I think we should pick this up again next week because there's an awful lot more to cover. I mean, just as a for instance, I bought my house in 2005. I bought it literally the week after Hurricane Katrina passed through. And I had to buy it online over the phone because houses were being snapped up, as you can imagine, from equidistant between Katrina and Rita. This house went for sale that day, and my realtor called me, and she said, Denise, this is the house you want. I had turned down a bunch of them. She knew precisely what I wanted. And I said, do I really, is this the house? She said, yes. I, I, she wrote everything up. I got to her office at 9 o'clock. I didn't see the house until I'd already bought it. But I'll tell you what, that was, I don't know how many years ago now, she's the person I'll go to if I ever sell this house. Without sure. question. She's your real estate person. Mm-hmm. She is. Well, listen, we tell Ben, tell anybody, tell tell our audience uh, where they can find you. They already know where they can find me, denisegriffitz.com, and tell people where they can get the clothes. Obviously, you need these books in your entrepreneurial library. You can get the whole closer series, including the one I referred to, Sales Closing Power by J. Douglas Edwards. Uh, which isn't blue and doesn't carry the Closers logo, but it's part of the family. Go to stores, S-T-O-R-E-S dot eBay dot com forward slash, this is all one word, Ronzoni Books, R-O-N-Z-O-N-E-B-O-O-K-S. I sign them all, I date them all, and they carry an unconditional lifetime money-back guarantee. But in 40 years of selling the closers, part one, we've gotten two back. So I'm not really living in fear of the, of the lifetime guarantee. I don't think so. And, you know, all those years ago, Ben, when you sent me these three books, Closers 1, Closers 2, 
and the book by Jay Douglas Edwards. I opened them all up, and you'd written me little notes on them. And the the one that you wrote for Jay Douglas Edwards, you wrote in there, Denise. He would love. He would have loved you. I have never forgotten that. It's like, aww. <laughs> <laughs> I really appreciate that. Listen, we're going to shut it down. Thank you, Ben. It is always a pleasure. And I have so much fun talking with you and learning from you. You know, you've been my mentor for unwillingly, probably, or unknown, but you've been my mentor for so many years, and I thank you. You have a wonderful day. Thank you. Get your voice heard. If you would like to launch your own far-reaching podcast, contact Denise Griffiths at yourofficeontheweb.com and go to the podcast tab.